All right, well, we're two weeks into our uh, sermon series titled Promises of God. And uh, I know the Bible is full of promises. We're not going to cover them all. That would be one really long sermon series. We've got actually six of them that we're going to focus on. Last week, we, we looked at this wonderful promise that's all throughout Scripture. In fact, we'll see it again in our passage. Um, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. God will take for himself a people from the earth and be their God and care for them and protect them. Today's passage, we're, we're going um, into Ezekiel. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 11, verses uh, 14 through 25. But before we read the passage, I thought it might be good maybe to refresh our memories as to who Ezekiel was and what this is about and kind of where we are uh, in Ezekiel's book before we uh, dig in too much and read it. So uh, who was Ezekiel? Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel, uh, his ministry took place around... 590s to 570s BC, give or take a few years. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet of the of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. By the time Ezekiel came around, uh, of course, the kingdom of, of Israel was separated into two kingdoms: the northern kingdom called Israel, and then the southern kingdom, Judah. And they had Jerusalem. Uh, then, about uh, 120 years or so prior to uh, Ezekiel. The northern kingdom was attacked by the Assyrians and taken into captivity, but the southern kingdom, Judah, was okay for now. Um, but then along came Nebuchadnezzar uh, from Babylon and attacked, and, um, and what took place was three deportations, or three taking of exiles from Judah and from the capital city, Jerusalem. Three times Nebuchadnezzar took uh, large groups of people, Israelites, back to Babylon. Um, and what we see is that Ezekiel was one of the first ones to go. <laughs> and, and, and so he's a prophet of, of an exile, in, a prophet in exile, and he's a prophet for the exiles. And in our passage today, um, it's part of an ongoing vision where Ezekiel has been taken uh, from, uh, from Babylon over to Jerusalem, and he sees things that are taking place. And, and a horrible uh, thing that he sees taking place in chapter 10 is that the glory of God departs the temple. And what we find is now in our chapter, though, um, we see that there are still people in Jerusalem. As we're going to read, there's going to be these people who are, they mock the exiles. They're like really proud that they're still there. You know, like everything's okay with them. We're still, we have the temple, we're good. And they mock the other exiles. But Ezekiel has a word for those who are in exile. Though you feel like outcasts, uh, your God has been your sanctuary. He has been a comfort for you. He's got a great promise for you to bring you back. But even more than that, he has a promise to give you new hearts. That is what the Israelites needed, hearts that were undivided towards God. And guess what? That's what we need as well. Hearts given from God, hearts that beat for God, and a new spirit within us. Ezekiel, chapter 11, verses 14 through 25. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. 
Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this word, a word of hope, uh, a word of change, not from within us, but from, from you as you plant new hearts in your people. We pray that you give us eyes to, to hear and, and uh, eyes to see and ears to hear that we would um, know what your truth is for us this morning. We pray. Amen. Imagine if computer chips uh, were like humans. Imagine, imagine that Intel couldn't reliably manufacture central processing units, and therefore every CPU was a little bit different, and therefore every computer processed data differently. What a mess the world would be. One computer would say, launch that rocket, while another one would say, hold on, stop the countdown, we can't launch. Uh, one computer would say, yeah, there's plenty of seats left to the concert, uh, go ahead and run your credit card, while another one would say, sorry, concert sold out, but you can still buy a t-shirt if you like. Imagine all the messed up stock trades that would take place. Imagine millions of computers all over the world taking in the same information and data and yet outputting different actions to take. The world would be in chaos. Thankfully, though, computer chips are uniform and reliable. Now, the point that the Bible makes pretty clear is that our CPUs aren't reliable and uniform. I know that's not exactly what the Bible says. Okay, the Bible uses the word hearts. The Bible says that our hearts are flawed. Now, when the Bible speaks of our hearts, it's not talking about that organ inside of us it's, uh, that, that beats blood. It's not talking so much about emotions that we, people, they wear their heart on their sleeves. They're really emotional. Now, uh, when the Bible refers to the, our, our heart, it's referring to our will, that, that processing unit inside of us that takes data in and then somehow comes up with decisions and moves out uh, with volition. That's what the human heart is. And, and scripture shows us the human heart is faulty. Now, how do we know the human heart is faulty? Well, I think we could do an experiment, gather 100 people into a room, and, and um, you tell them, you say, you know, it's been found that a low-fat, low-salt, uh, low-sugar diet can add 10 years to your life. You can tell people those facts, but what happens? Does everybody go out and do them? Well, some people will they'll 
they'll start a they'll start a diet. Other people will start a diet and stop a diet. Some people take part of it in and do part of it. Some people will say, you know what, YOLO, you know, just give me a Big Mac and I'm out of here, right? So I mean, that's it's that's how people are, right? There's proof that our hearts um, are different and faulty. But in a more important way, though, here's how we must know our hearts are faulty. We were made by God for God. We were made so that our hearts, our, our, our desires, our longings uh, would be God-centered and God-focused and, and, and think that our lives, would, everything that we do would be for God's glory. This is how we are made. And yet, when we look at the world around us and when we look at our own hearts, we must recognize that this is not the case. Our hearts are faulty, but thankfully, God has promised a remedy. We see it in our passage. God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. The point we need to see this morning is that to all who acknowledge their need and turn to him, God gives new hearts and a new spirit. That's what we're going to look at this morning in our passage The first thing I want us to look at, though, is there's two types of people in the beginning of our passage in in verses 14 through 17. The two types we see, we see uh, see the arrogant and we see the outcast. The arrogant are the ones with a false sense of security, that they're, they're still living in the promised land. They have the temple. Everything's okay. And then we have the outcast. These are the exiles who, who are second-class citizens, slaves in a, in a foreign land, cast aside by God. The arrogant ones still remaining in Jerusalem, they mock the exiles. Do you see that in verse 15? That's what they're doing with these words. Uh, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Those who are still in Jerusalem are claiming that they have God's special favor and care. Uh, I guess since you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law, they, they conclude that therefore they are in good standing with God. The ones who are in Jerusalem are the righteous ones. Now, it's true at this time, the belief was in all the nations around Israel was that um, every nation had its own god or gods. And so if you were to leave the land, well, then you were leaving your god or gods behind. So those who remained in Jerusalem, they looked down on those who were in exile. They're, they were far from their god. And it's true, those who were in exile in, in, um, in Babylon, they looked down on themselves as well. They would have felt judged by God, and and rightly so, because that's why they were there. They were being judged by God. They would have been felt cut off from God and his promises. They would have felt defeated. They would have felt as if they were outcasts without hope. But this is not how God saw them. God speaks these amazing words to Ezekiel with the intention of bringing them back to these people who are in exile. Look at verse 16. Therefore say... Thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations and though I scatter them among the countries. In other words, though I spit them out of the land like I promised I would if they um, if they started living sinful, horrendous lives. Um, He says, I scatter them. But look, look what he says, though I sent them away, yet I have been a sanctuary to them. God is saying, though though the physical sanctuary of God is far from these people in exile, I have been a sanctuary for them. 
as they have come to see that, that the reason why they are in exile, as they've come to see that their hearts really aren't true to God, that they've lived deplorable lives, as they've come to re- repent of this and turn away, God has heard them. God has cared for them, even in this distant and foreign land. God wants Ezekiel to take a special word back to the exiles. He, he wanted them to, to see that, that, and to know that, that things aren't as they seem. They should expect a big reversal. People are got to used to these big reversals, right? You remember uh, Joseph. <laughs> he, uh, he was sold as a slave into Egypt, but by the end of his tenure there, he was number one in command of all of Egypt. Or, or King David. There was a great reversal there. David was chosen as a young boy over and against his taller, stronger, more capable brothers. And it's the way that our Lord speaks of when he says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Though the exiles were by definition far from God, he made himself close to them. Now we're going to see in a couple of weeks that God disciplines his children, and rightly so, just as parents discipline their children. What took place was there was great discipline was needed. These weren't little toddlers who just needed a little time out. These were like the 18-year-old who thumbed their nose at their parents and you know said all kinds of obscenities, and they just they needed to be out of the house. That was what was going on. And yet, God had a plan. This was all part of God's plan. And when they cried out to God, God heard them, and he was for them a sanctuary. God had more in store for these people who were in exile. He had a promise that he would bring them home. We see that in verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. God promised to bring his treasured people home. And this took place in 539 B.C. Uh, the, the Persians ended up battling against the, the Babylonians and the Persians won. And King Cyrus in 539 issued a decree that the Israelites were free to return to their land and free to rebuild a temple. And that's what took place. God promised his outcast children that he would bring them home. Why were they permitted to return? Well, their hearts had now been humbled. Do you remember the, the movie Thor? Remember, uh, remember Thor's dad uh, kicked Thor out? Thor was a prideful, uh, powerful uh, dude, uh, superhero, uh, with his big hammer. Uh, but God kicked Thor, uh, God, God, his father, sorry, kicked Thor uh, out and sent him to earth. So, um, and along with his hammer, you know, he threw it down to earth. And with a curse on Thor and on the hammer. The hammer could not be picked up by anyone unless they proved themselves worthy. And Thor was not worthy at the time. It took some correcting and some soul-searching. Eventually, though, after um, Thor humbly offered to sacrifice his life for the well-being of others, it was then that he was able to now pick up the hammer and use it um, to save others. So too the people in exile were humbled, or as Jesus would say, they were poor in spirit. What did Jesus say belonged to those who were poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
The promised land in the Old Testament has now morphed into something far greater and superior. A kingdom, a kingdom of God on earth, scattered all throughout the earth. And that's what we experience here today. The kingdom of God has scattered. It has gone out. It is everywhere around the globe. But it's for those who are poor in spirit. You don't take the kingdom by force. Uh, The kingdom doesn't come to those who are proud. Why? Because the prideful have no need for Christ or his kingdom. The kingdom rather comes to those who have been humbled and who are poor in spirit. People who know they are dependent fully upon God's mercy and his grace. That they are at every moment of their lives dependent upon the grace of God for their lives here. And those are the poor in spirit. That's for who the kingdom is. We also see that this offer of this gift comes with responsibility. Verse 18. And when they, uh, and when they uh, come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. He's saying when they come back to the land, they're going to they're gonna cleanse the land. They're going to purify it. Why? Because there was a lot of bad stuff still hanging around. Back in the days when they were in the land, they began worshiping all kinds of other gods. Their hearts went after the gods of the nations around them. They built all these altars on these high places around the country. Not only were they worshiping false gods and idols, but, but they were cruel to each other. There was no justice in the land. The, the widow's um, cries were not being heard, and the orphans were left uh, abandoned. It was a very corrupt and, and horrible situation in the nation of Israel. That's why they were kicked out. And God is saying, when you return, uh, you need to call up waste man. Management, get about a hundred roll-off uh, uh, dumpsters, and you need to tear down all of these abominable, detestable things that are going to lead my people astray. If they're still up, you need to take them down and be rid of them. Now, was God asking them to earn their way back into His good favor? You must do. You must do all this, and if you do all this, then I will give you a new heart. Is that what we see taking place here? No, this new heart that God gives isn't a response to our becoming righteous and doing good deeds. God does not respond to our righteousness. God responds to our repentance. That's what he's calling his people to do. Repent. Recognize that the ways that you had been uh, undertaking are an abomination. Not just agree with that, but repent. Put it away. Put it behind you. Turn the other direction. Commit to that no more. He's calling his people to repentance. You know, many people today know that what they're doing is wrong. (laughs) uh, And they just do it anyway. I think that's, once again, proof that our hearts are, are, are faulty. They are corrupt. Our hearts do what we want to do, even when the facts are, uh, tell us to do otherwise. Even when we agree that we should do otherwise, we still find ourselves doing things that we know we shouldn't be doing. And so repentance is that work of God inside of his people where we grieve over the things that we have allowed ourselves to be led into. Let me scratch that not allowed to be led into, the things that we have chased after. (laughs) These have been our decisions that we've done, and we've grieved God, we've harmed others. The proper response is repentance. 
See, the grace of God that comes to you is a fruit of repentance. Remember John the Baptist? He prepared the way for Jesus. He had a baptism. What was his baptism? A baptism of repentance. Prepare the way of the Lord. You will not be ready for the grace of God until your heart's prepared through repentance for the grace of God. Unless you repent, you will not see a need for God's grace. You will be like the arrogant still in Jerusalem who are saying, you know, we might need to change a few things. At the end of the day, I think we're not too bad. We're doing pretty good. We might need to add a few new habits. We surely don't need new hearts. We just need to commit to some new habits. That's how the human heart is. We need repentance. We need to repent. And like Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. So, what we see here is that God's sending of his people into exile will have its proper effect. The people, though far from home, are not far from, from God. He has been a sanctuary to them. His people respond properly to their circumstances. They, they are humble before God. They're poor in spirit. They know they're not the people they know they should be. And they know that they are in great need of God's mercy and grace. They are ready to repent and to demonstrate their repentance by removing all the detestable things that were still in the land. Now, this is what conversion looks like 2,500 years ago. And that's what it looks like today. Isn't it true, Christian? You found yourself in some circumstance where you're at your wit's end. You found yourself in some circumstance uh, where the, the floor beneath you is stripped uh, away and you found yourself falling to a depth that you've never imagined before. You found yourself in circumstances where things were actually, for once, out of your control. And you came to realize this is perhaps God's doing, his way of humbling you so that you would see that you, you are in need of his mercy and grace. God put you in a situation where you became poor in spirit and you cried out for, for, for Christ to come and to, to heal you and to forgive you. Essentially, what you've come to understand is that your heart is flawed and no amount of adding new good habits to your life is going to fix the situation. And you cry out to God and say, I need a new heart that comes through Christ Jesus. I don't need an, an anger management class. That won't be enough. I, I don't need a therapist to just tell me everything's okay. I need something far more radical than that. I need a new heart and a new spirit, one that comes from above. Christian, you've experienced that in some sort of way, right? The people in exile, at least most of them, will soon turn to God for mercy and grace. And this new promise of a, of a new heart and a new spirit will come their way. Verses 19 and 20. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be 
their God. If that, if that last line looks familiar, yeah, that's what we looked at last week. God promises all throughout Scripture, I will take for me a people and I will be their God. They will be my, my people. But the question is, how can anyone really be the people of God unless, if our hearts beat for everything other than God himself? God knows what we need. He knows we need a heart that comes from him. We don't need more rules to follow. The Bible is full of commands and we still don't do them. We need new hearts And that's what God promises to give his people. God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. What is it that God is promising here? A heart and a spirit. These words both describe the inner person. Um, I like how the esteemed scholar Christopher Wright puts it. So I'll just let you hear from him directly. He writes this. He says, the Hebrew idiom, uh, in Hebrew idiom, the heart is the locus of the mind, not primarily of the emotions. It is, in, it is in or within the heart that a person thinks, decides, and wills. The spirit reflects the inner feelings and aspirations of the person. Again, not merely in the sense of emotion, but in terms of the attitude, disposition, and motivation which one brings to choice and actions. The two terms are closely related but not identical. Israel will have to think differently and feel differently. Their whole inner world needs to be transformed. This is what the Israelites in exile needed. This is what every human being needs. God's solution is what? He provides a heart transplant. Did you pick up on that in the passage? God says he will remove the heart of stone. A stony heart. That's what it was that that made Israel uh, hard and cold and unresponsive and and dead to God's word. God deliberately uses an oxymoron here. A a heart of stone is a metaphor for a heart that is no heart. (laughs) Right? But God says he will implant in its place a heart of flesh, which is living and, and warm and soft. God will transplant Israel's whole mindset and fundamental orientation of will and desire and purpose. You know, there's numerous places in the Old Testament where God promises a a new heart and putting a spirit, uh, his Holy Spirit, into his people. There's a number of places. Another one we come across is a little bit later in Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You see, this is purification, forgiveness. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, the big question is, did this ever happen? What happened to these people in exile? Well, they did return in 539. The, the Persians beat up on the Babylonians. Cyrus let the Israelites return. And guess what? They did cleanse the land of detestable things. They did rebuild the temple. And so in one true sense, they, they were of one heart and spirit. And yet there's something lacking The promise that we see here seems to be calling for a greater fulfillment than what we saw in the 6th century B.C. You know, 
after the exiles returned, they, they did a lot of good things, but nothing was really fully restored to its original glory. There was a new temple, but it was small. It wasn't as elaborate. And you know what else? The glory of God never returned. It was never there again, as it was in David and Solomon's day, as in Moses' day, when, when God's presence and glory was there in the tabernacle. In verses 22 and 23, we, we see that the glory of God had departed the temple in the city. Where did the glory of Yahweh land. You see it in verse 23. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. You know what that mountain is, don't you? You do? Maybe, maybe don't, you, you'll know when I say it. It's the Mount of Olives. That's the mountain east of Jerusalem. It's the place where Our Lord often took his disciples. On the last week of his life, he went there a couple times. You can read about it in Matthew's chapter 21 through 25. I encourage you to do that this week. But in those chapters, we see Jesus um, coming into Jerusalem one last time. And on his way in, he does what? He curses a fig tree. That seems odd. He curses a fig tree. And then he goes and curses the temple. And then he cleanses it. And he comes back out. And the next day, it's... The fig tree is withered, which is what? It's, it's, it's God's judgment is now coming upon the temple. Uh, the fig tree should have had fruit, but it had none. The temple should have had fruit, but it had none. And then, and then for four and a half chapters, Jesus stands in the temple. He stands in the temple rebuking its leaders with parable after parable and woe after woe of how they have failed. And how and then and then Jesus says these words, he says, he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus was, of course, talking about his own body. And is that not what we see in Jesus Christ? In Christ is the sanctuary of God. Jesus is the the in, in Christ Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt bodily. Jesus is a walking temple of God. We see this early on in John's gospel, where John says in chapter 1, verse 14, says that the word, that's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The the Greek word dwelt here is a word uh, meant meant for pitching a tent or, or for tabernacling. Moses, God tabernacled with the ancient Israelites in the tent of meeting. In a real powerful sense, how much more so has God tabernacled in his own son, Jesus Christ, as he physically walked on earth? The picture we need to see is that God has come down, and he's no longer in a temple. He is in his own son, the living flesh, the, the Jesus, who, Jesus who, who had a heart of flesh, unlike every human being who's ever lived. We, we have hearts of stone. But Jesus is the one true Israelite who lived as the Israelites should have lived and died as the, as the, in the place of, of, of Israelites and in our place so that, so that his life becomes 
our life. That is, that is what we are to see here. Jesus is saying that we don't need the temple. I am the temple. On the Mount of Olives, a couple days before he went to the cross, Jesus um, spoke to his disciples. And he said, you know, that this temple is going to be destroyed someday. No, no single stone will be on top of another one. And the disciples are, when is this? You know, and that's where we get on the whole prophecy section and towards the end of Matthew. Um, Jesus says, you know, I don't know exactly when it's going to happen. It's going to happen. All right. Um, but he was more interested in something else. For Jesus, he had another thing on his mind. As, as, the, as the glorious Son of God is out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, on that hill on the east side of, of uh, Jerusalem, he knows what's coming. He knows that uh, in another day, he will be on another mountain overlooking Jerusalem. He will be on a cross bearing the, the sins of the world. He will be performing the functions of the temple to provide sacrifices for the sins of God's people. And he will be sacrificing himself in our place. Do you see the parallels in Ezekiel? In, in Ezekiel's day, the glory of the Lord departed the temple, departed Jerusalem, and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, on the, on the Mount of Olives. And with far greater significance, Jesus, the living temple of God, wherein the fullness of glory dwells bodily, Jesus left the temple. He left the city and he stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, knowing that he was going to the cross to bear the sins of the world. He had one thing on his mind. Where Israel failed, he succeeds. Where the temple failed, he succeeds. Earlier in that week when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he had to assure them, he said, I got to do this. If I don't do this, the new heart can't come. If I don't do this, the, the promise of God that goes all the way back through the Old Testament cannot come to a full reality in the people of God. He says, unless I do this, unless I return to the Father, um, the helper cannot come. The Comforter cannot come. The Holy Spirit cannot come. But he says, but when the Spirit comes, watch out. The Spirit will not just be with you. He will be in you. The dwelling place of God will be with man. God will be in each and every one of his children. Jesus said, and you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and me in you. My friends, that day has come. Fifty days after Easter, this, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were uh, the, uh, poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church. Pentecost has come. The era of the new heart and the new spirit has arrived. And we live in it. The Apostle Paul speaks of this when he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Also to the church in Colossae, Paul, Paul speaks of this, this hope of glory that the Christian has. And you know what he says it is? Christ 
in you. It's the, our hope of glory. Christ in you. We, this promise given to the remnant Israel over 500 years earlier before Christ has come true through Christ. And today we live in the era of the new heart and the new spirit. If you belong to Christ, you have a new heart and a new spirit in you. Christ dwells in you. And you know this, right? Because you love God. You do want to honor him. There's something has changed. You're not the same person. This is the hope of glory, Christ in you. And yet, is it not also true, though, that, that this is your ultimate hope? Do you not, like me, find yourself doing things you don't want to do? You know the good that God's calling you to do. And in the morning, you set out to do that. But by noon, something different has taken place. The good things that we know we ought to do, often we don't do them. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. You can read on that yourselves. Why is this? Theologians say the reason for this is that we live in the age, it's the already, not yet. The kingdom has come already, but it's not yet here in its fullness. We already are God's people. And he is already our God. But yet the fullness of that reality is still yet to come. As we saw last week, God's going to bring a physically new heaven uh, to a new renewed earth. And at that time, God will physically dwell with his people. We're not yet there. We live in the already, not yet. What does this mean for us with regards to our new hearts and spirit? It means we truly have new hearts and new spirits, and yet we often do not do what we ought. What we must see is that in Christ you have a totally new nature, and yet you are tempted with the same old temptations. You are new. The temptations are old. And so as Paul says, we must put off the old self and put on the new. This is how it is until that long-awaited era comes. A time in which we will not only, it's hard to picture, we will not only not have a capacity to sin, we also won't even have a playground for it. That's what the new heavens and new earth will be like in those who are recreated in Christ. Until that day we live in the already, not yet. Now, we live in an age where we can obey the Spirit or not. Paul says we can grieve the Holy Spirit or we can walk in the Holy Spirit. Have you, have you ever the wish that you could, like the Holy Spirit would just like totally take control over you, like zap you, you know, and, and make it so that you always did the right thing? You could never do the wrong thing. Ever wanted that? It's just me. It's just me. A couple of you. I know who you are. All right. Well, be careful what you wish for. I don't know, there's numerous reports this past week, maybe you saw it, all kinds of different news channels. There was, a, there was this terrifying new species of wasp that was uh, discovered last year in the Mekong Delta, and it's called the Ampulex Dementor. It's named after the soul-sucking Dementors from the Harry Potter books. <laughs> Here's what this wasp does in Thailand. 
this wasp comes up to a for some reason they like eating cockroaches. I don't know, but uh, they come up to cockroaches and they sting them in just the right spot in the um, where the these neurons on the belly of a cockroach, and it turns the roach into a passive zombie. It cannot do anything on its own. It, it, and, and, and you can just YouTube. Okay, not right now, but search, search YouTube for zombie roaches or, uh, you know, Dementor wasp, and you'll see these videos, are, they're, they're incredible. The wasp will, will take this cockroach and lead it wherever it wants, and know where it takes it? Down into its lair, and it lays eggs on it. The cockroach is still alive, cannot move on its own. And then the, the little baby wasp, grow and they start eating the cockroach. Zombie cockroaches. Now, thankfully, this is not what is offered to us in the gospel. Jesus says that he has come to set us free. We have been set free. We've, we've now been set free from sin. We've also been set free from the law and its demands upon us that we can never fully fulfill. We've been set free with a new heart that beats for God. We have been set free. And, 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 and it's interesting, though, but how do we live this set-free life without getting turning back into the things that we know we shouldn't? Or when we do, how do we, how do we, how do we re-experience this uh, walk with the Lord? Well, it's interesting that in John chapter 14, where Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, right after that comes John chapter 15, where he says, Abide in me. He says, you can bear no good fruit apart from me. Now abide in me. You are a branch on this wonderful vine, which is Christ. And just as, as the, as the I'm going to Napa Valley this summer, I'm going to probably see a lot of vines with grapes and stuff, but just as this, these old, wonderful vines have um, sap and nutrients and, and everything that the branches need to be fruitful and create leaves and, and grapes, so too with Christ. As we, Christian, Christ calls you to, not just to come to him, but to stay with him, to abide with him. You know, um, why? Because we need him each and every day of our lives. Now, the whole sermon could be preached on what it means to abide. That's a different passage. But here's what I think it means for us in a real simple way. What it means is we need the gospel every day. We need to be reminded uh, that in our brokenness, we have, a, we have a God who truly is our sanctuary, no matter where we are. And that often as we go through and we experience difficult trials, God is using those to, to humble us, not to drive us away from him, but to draw us closer to him. And, and, it, and there's this poverty of spirit, Christian, that we are, it's never to go away. At least not until Christ returns. There's this poverty of spirit that as we abide in Christ, we're reminded of, 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 of um, how foolish we are <laughs> and how fallen we are, but also how wonderful and gracious our Savior is. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We need to be reminded that, that even on our best day, our hearts can be fickle. We can go back to those old temptations. We, we, we do the things we don't want to do. But when we're in Christ... 
all of that is not only forgiven, but there's a, a, a newness to us that comes as we abide in him. There is a hope. There is, there is a peace as we remind ourselves of this gospel that we hold dear. Now, where does this leave us this morning? I guess it depends upon uh, your approach to this passage. Maybe you came here this morning and, and you, you're more like the arrogant person um, there in Jerusalem. Um, you know, I'm all right. I, don't, there's a, I might need to tweak a few things in my life. I got a few habits I need to get rid of. And maybe I just need to, you know, uh, do a little yoga or something. I need to, you know, maybe, uh, you know, uh, surround myself with nice people and things will go better. Uh, I hope you've seen... I don't mean to mock that, but I hope you've seen that it doesn't matter how many habits you try to inculcate into your life. Habits aren't going to get you to where you need to go. What I hope you come to see is that our old habits, I mean, our old hearts are are really good at breaking new habits, right? (laughs) I hope what we, hopefully what you've seen is that you, you need a new heart that comes from above. You can cry out for that. You can get it today. Talk to the Lord. Give your life to him. The bulk of us, though, we just need to be reminded of our ongoing need for mercy and for grace. That we are poor in spirit every day. That God, though, has really done a new work in us. You really are a new creation. You have a new heart and a new spirit. And you need to be reminded that though you may fail... Christ, Christ will never fail you, right? That's the promises that we have in him. And scripture says this, he says, he who began a good work in you will carry it out until the day of completion. That's his promise. Maybe rest in that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this promise of a new heart, a new spirit. We are desperate. (laughs) And we are also people who are in great delight this morning. We've seen it in our own lives. As, as we look at our, what you've done, that heart surgery, you truly have made us new in Christ Jesus. We long for the fullness to come. Until then, may we abide in Christ and find our strength in him. May your spirit encourage us each and every day to walk in his ways until he returns, we pray. Amen.